and I mean aviator, not just a pilot, not just a systems operator, you must be an aviator. You've got to have the flexibility to fly that machine when all these systems fail on you. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly and support them. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. John Ekind is our guest today for episode nine of the Rotary Wing Show. John's aviation career has spanned 49 years and he's still adding time on top of that today as an active commercial pilot. He has spent a huge amount of time flying over the oceans as a ex-Royal Navy pilot and multiple stints in the oil industry. He's also the first nuclear-qualified helicopter pilot I've ever spoken to, and we cover that in the episode. John has worked for several of the larger companies as well as owned his own uh, and operated his own helicopter company in police work, firefighting, aerial photography, banner towing, charter, heli skiing, traffic reporting, long lining, film flying, you name it, including flying in Antarctica, John has done it. He's also heavily involved in the industry outside the cockpit, being a long-time member and office holder in the Honourable Company of Air Pilots and as a frequent contributor to online forums. So it's my very great pleasure to introduce you to John Ecott. So, John Ecott, thank you for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. Pleasure, mate. Normally, like, there's, uh, we'd sort of work on a try and work on one individual topic and, and talk around that. But I think we may not actually get to a particular topic because you've done so much of, of everything. But maybe if we get towards the end, uh, if we talk a little bit about aerial filming, because I, I take it again just from trying to do a little bit of research that photography is one of your passions. I enjoy it, yes, but I enjoy all flying. It's all I've ever wanted to do. I was six years old. I decided I wanted to be a pilot. And what was the – was it just seeing an aircraft go by or books or talking with your – did your parents or your grandfather? Like, Was there any, any aviation connection in the family? Oh, it's in the family. Dad was uh, a Bofighter pilot uh, in the Second World War and uh, it rubbed off. So did you do any fixed-wing flying beforehand or you were straight to helicopters? Oh, I don't I don't like to talk about it, but I've got about a 1,000 hours fixed-wing, but yeah, you don't, please don't tell anyone. Fair enough. Okay, so you did school. At some stage you started flying helicopters. Did you go straight into the Navy or, or where did you get the your first couple of lessons? Well, my first licence was uh, while I was still at school back in, back in England. I got uh, what they called a flying scholarship, which was where the Royal Air Force sponsored uh, cadets from the Air Training Corps, and that got me through to PPL. But that was back in the good old days when you could get a fixed-wing PPL with only 30 hours flying. But that was good fun. Um, that was done one summer holiday when I just turned 17. I did my gliding uh, A and B uh, during the same period. And uh, when I left school, I managed to get myself into the Royal Navy. Very short but interesting story. I was the last one to get in under a loophole that allowed helicopter pilots in with 618 eyesight. I'd I'd been turned down by the Royal Air Force and by BOAC, the predecessor to British Airways, purely on uh, bad eyesight. And I found out that 
helicopter pilots got in and I was accepted. And uh, I hadn't been at Dartmouth, the Royal Naval College, for two weeks when my divisional officer showed me a Defence Council instruction upping the eyesight requirement for helicopter pilots and closing the loophole after me. So you snuck in. I was, it wasn't so much a loophole, but yeah, I got knocked back initially and then had to reapply and was very lucky one of the aviation doctors got me through. So yeah, I spent my whole military career uh, flying with glasses. I assume, did you have to fly with glasses or did you get through just um, without Oh no, I, I need glasses. I've got, uh, my eyesight was, uh, one eye was 618, which was the absolute limit for helicopter pilots at the time. Okay. And what types did you learn on? Uh, what uh, were they flying then? Well, initially, uh, fixed wing training on chipmunks. Uh, that was up in Yorkshire uh, in the middle of winter, which isn't very nice when you're taxiing out between the uh, snow drifts with no heated cockpit, no uh, nothing to keep you warm except uh, adrenaline. Yikes. So chipmunks and then down to Cornwall and started on the Hiller 12E. After the Hiller 12E, onto the Whirlwind, the Alvis Leonides major-powered. You could hear every piston start up. Beautiful old machine. And then that got me through to Wings, after Wings on to Wessex, initially the Wessex 1 and then the Wessex 3, as I've been streamed into anti-submarine warfare, ASW pilot. And uh, that was all done down in uh, Cornwall and down at Portland where we finished off the operational training. Was the Wessex a, a single or was it a twin? Yes. Yeah, the, uh, the Wessex was the offshore anti-submarine helicopter of its day. Carrier-based, of course, and um, got a lot of respect for it. The twin-engine Wessex, which I flew later in life uh, at the time, was being used for commando flying. So people would stream either to commandos or to ASW. Uh, good fun. Um, it's a really different design, the Wessex, because like, you're sitting right up above the, the rest of the machine. Uh, there's something about it. It was much the same as the whirlwind, of course, and there's something about being a a 20-year-old midshipman climbing up the side of a massive great aircraft like that with uh, the cyclic somewhere up around your chest level because they needed that much leverage if you ever had to fly the thing manually. And uh, off you go with a crewman down the back trying to teach you how to winch or scoop up things in what we called the sprawl neck net. Uh, very interesting. Then on to the Wessex, of course. The Wessex has a, a, a cult following almost. A lot of fun. Uh, off the carriers, it had a one-and-a-half-hour sortie time, and you worried if you got less than 12 minutes fuel. Well, let me tell you, try, in those days, you, that was the done thing, so you didn't even think about it. But now, how would you like hovering alongside an aircraft carrier at night and watching the fuel gauge where it says however many pounds, and you work out, well, that's 12 minutes, yeah, I better tell somebody that I need to land on soon. But that's what they used to do. Yeah. I know we'll get on the North um, North Sea type stuff later on, but I'm just imagining, you know, being sitting in a hover over water away from the carrier while you're dunking, uh, and I guess you're dunking sonar boys into the water um, yep. in a single engine uh, in uh, fairly, you know, cold water. It's uh, it, it would make you alert. Oh, look, the thing was, everyone, this is what you did. You didn't know any better. The flight control system of the Wessex was actually a mechanical wiper arm going down a rheostat 
and changing the input to the flight controls. And during training where the aircraft were used for general handling for a few weeks and then went on to the automatic hover, you very often would find yourself going down and all of a sudden there'd be a little bit of corrosion uh, built up over the rheostat and you'd get a massive great spike. So the controls would decide they'd go the actual opposite of what you wanted, which was character building. <laughs> okay. Um, I was very lucky after the Wessex. I uh, Instead of going to a frontline squadron, I was sent to the Seeking Trials Unit, which was putting the Western Seeking into military service. So that was terrific fun. And, of course, as a very, very junior pilot, I was in at the start of the, start of the Seeking. And uh, the, the trials unit were doing all sorts of things like carrying underslung loads and uh, doing intensive flying so that they could rack up the hours and see what broke. And that's another design that's just stood the test of time and been around for a long time as well as the, the Seeking. I'm amazed there's a little article in uh, – I'm obviously a member of the Fleet Air Arm Officers Association and there's an article that they've just published where three of the original helicopters that I flew on the trials unit when they were brand new with about 100, 200 hours on, on them, the three combined are still in service and they have just reached about 50,000 hours between them 45 years later. Wow, that's amazing. Yes. It's a lovely design and it's such a shame that the Australian Navy got rid of theirs. Uh, it, they could have been put into very, very good use around the country as uh, aid to civil powers, search and rescue, long-range rescue, and give all those pilots sitting around something to do and a bit of command experience. But as an ex-military man, you'd know that uh, what makes sense doesn't always meet the government's requirements. Well, there was this uh, fantastic plan to rationalise a helicopter fleet that uh, hasn't quite come to fruition, unfortunately. It's uh, gone uh, back to multiple times, but that happens. Yeah. Uh, in the in your Navy service, uh, John, what parts of the globe did you get to? Pretty much all of them. Uh, I was on HMS Eagle, which was a 50,000-tonne strike carrier, attack carrier with uh, our nuclear bombers were the, were the buccaneers. Um, Eagle, we had the Sea Vixens as the fighters and uh, Gannett's Airborne Early Warning and the Sea King, of course. We, we were actually nuclear qualified. We had a thing called the 600-pound bomb, which was a nuclear depth charge. So we all had to do the Z course and the nuclear, nuclear qualifications. After that, up to Presswick up in Scotland where we were tasked to sanitise areas of the northern North Sea so that the Polaris submarines could go out without being picked up and tailed by the Russians, plus the odd search and rescue and uh, other jobs up there. So then I went to, how many people on board for those crews? Is it um, a pilot, observer and someone in the back? No, two pilots and the observer and the what they call the UC, the underwater controller, the sonar operator in the back. So it was a four-man crew and for... For winching or search and rescue, then the crew in the back, uh, the, the UC, the sonar man was the down-the-wire man and uh, the observer would operate the winch unless it was a dedicated sonar, in which case we'd take a sonar diver along as well. Do you have some memorable rescues you were on? Oh, yeah, always interesting ones. Um, 
you know, out in the South China Sea where a freighter ran aground and uh, they were hundreds of miles from anywhere and fully expecting to go down with the ship and four seekings coming over the horizon in a on the edge of a, a typhoon and picking them all up. And the interesting thing was, of course, they all wanted to bring their suitcases and their and their stereo systems with them and were most upset where the crewmen down on the deck resorted to throwing everything overboard to to uh, settle the argument. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, at some stage, um, John, what was the trigger to get out of the Navy? Was it to try some different things or was it... Uh, yeah, well, I'd, in eight years in the Navy, I spent five years on carriers. After Eagle, I went to uh, Ark Royal and did two tours on that and um, finished up on the foreign training unit teaching... Pakistanis and Egyptians to operate the seeking and uh, had the option to leave after eight years. So took the option, took the money and uh, went to Nigeria, which is another long story. I was supposed to have uh, gone to Iran. And I actually went to Tehran and uh, did the secret police, the old SAVAK clearance back in the days of the Shah. And the Dutch company I was working for pulled a Swifty on me and sent me to Nigeria against my will and uh, on a promise which when I got there was, uh, do you have it in writing? Sorry, no, in that case you're just flying the Alouette like everyone else, which taught me a lesson. I got everything in writing from then on. Yeah, so that would have been a bit of a, well, I don't know, not so much a step backwards but a much simpler machine than what you were previously doing. Oh, yes, yeah. Look, uh, it was interesting. Let me say that. There was... Uh, there's some interesting things to be seen and to do in Nigeria, but uh, it's not the most attractive place in the world then, and it's even worse now. So oil support, that was uh, onshore oil rigs, or, or was it actually offshore work? Uh, offshore work, yeah. So it was sink, sink back to single engine uh, with floats flying out. So it was only about 20 or 30 miles offshore, but that's far enough uh, single engine when you're carrying passengers. But... Uh, as I say, Nigeria is uh, one of those things I'll put in the old memory bank and promise not to go back. Fair enough. All right, so a couple of years there, and then you headed back to the UK? Yes. Um, I actually came out to Australia for an interview with, with ANSET, uh, and by the time I managed to get out of Nigeria and get to Australia, because my parents were living here and still live here, Dad took up a job with the Australian Air Force, Anyway, came out here, and uh, by the time I got here, the job that had been offered to me had gone. So I was sitting around, and I thought, I don't want to go back to Nigeria, and I answered an advert in the back of Flight magazine. Uh, got the job over the telephone, and went back, uh, handed in my notice to Nigeria, and went to the North Sea Flying 212s. Uh, actually living out on the, on the rigs, we weren't flying from shore, but we were doing interfield shuttles and uh, bus runs all the year round. And most of our work was for the 6 a.m. start and the 6 p.m. finish, taking guys to the where they were constructing the platforms. All right, John, I've, I've never been out to an oil rig or, or really seen it up close. So you were actually living and operating, so you had engineers and everything on the rig and the aircraft would just stay there week yes. by week. And yep. what the work crews would live on a main rig and go out to smaller rigs for repairs or, or work, or what was the setup there? No, the production field was under construction, 
So they had accommodation modules uh, put onto semi-subs and other vessels so that the workforce lived on them and had to go to work on the platforms. So they were flown to work and flown home. Uh, Of course, with sunrise at quarter past nine and sunset about three o'clock in the afternoon, 6 a.m., 6 p.m. were night flying for about two or three months uh, in the middle of winter where I didn't see a daytime flying hour. Yikes, and the North Sea is pretty famous for bad weather. Uh, so you, did you, I'm sure you saw a lot of that. Like, does, it, does it live up to that reputation? Oh, yeah, a calm day was less than 20 knots. All right, so a couple of years there, and that was on 212s? Yes, yeah, we had four 212s permanently based out in the Brent field there. And the company I was with, uh, Bees, British Executive Air Services, got taken over by Bristow. And Bristow needed a couple of pilots in Australia up in the northwest. Uh, since I had residence uh, or, or had working approval because my mum and dad were out here, I uh, got asked to come out here and myself and a fellow called Marek Glinsky came out together back in March 1979. All right. Well, well, I'm born by this stage, so that's uh, I can come into the story. <laughs> <laughs> All um, right, so so where'd you okay, so in Australia and where were you operating from then? Uh started in Broome, worked out of Broome, Derby and Port Hedland. Mostly we were flying out of Derby and Broome. I was flying the Wessex, uh the Wessex sixty, which is the twin engine version of the Wessex. And we were going out all the way north across the Timor Sea to the expiration in those days of what's now the production field just off East Timor. And for the people who, who are listening overseas, John, and don't know Australia, would you like to describe where Broome is? Broome is right up the top left-hand corner of Australia, and it would be a four-hour flight north, single pilot, with about eight passengers downstairs in the Wessex, uh, refuelling twice on the way out to the rig, once on the rig, and then once on the way back, all in uh, 35, 38 degrees with the door open heading north in the morning with the sun out to the right and heading south in the afternoon with the sun out to the right, such that my right arm was about seven shades darker than my left arm. So <laughs> I, I did have the common question in the bar was, oh, are you a truck driver? Yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm at the window. And, and yeah, Broome is one of the more remote uh, places in Australia. I, I guess you say it's, uh, yeah, as you said, right at the, the, the top left of the country. Uh, so that, that was basically like an eight-hour day then. So eight hours return, you'd go out in the morning, come back in the other. Yes, yep. And um, Broome in those days was a very, very small place. You could walk from one end to the other in five minutes. It's not the big touristy place that it is now. And how'd you nav- uh, sorry, I was going to say, John, how did you navigate? Were you going to the same rigs or was it different rigs out there? And how do you actually, like, how do you navigate out there in that oh, area? Oh, boy, we, we were really advanced. We had Omega. All right. Tell, tell yeah, me about that's, Omega. That, that's got you, hasn't it? Omega yeah. is the, or Omega, is the long long wave navigation system that was developed for the Polaris boats, because the long wave penetrates the ocean, it was developed as a, a way of sending a signal to submerged 
nuclear missile submarines. And it had the secondary effect of giving a navigation system accurate to about one mile. And we had those fitted to the helicopters, which was good in a way, but you've also got to realise this is 1970s technology. So you had to reprogram the whole lot with your waypoints, and it would only take about half a dozen waypoints every time you uh, stopped or started the helicopter in that temperature. I never stopped both engines while I was refueling. I didn't trust it that much, but the spike of starting the second engine would always reset the Omega, so you'd have to start off again. Uh, VLF is the other terminology, very low frequency. And there were two stations in Australia, one down in Sale and one up in um, Exmouth. All right. And again, I'd have to look at the map. How, How far is it from Exmouth to Broome? Off the top of my head, probably four, five hundred miles. Okay, so it's not that you could go via there on the way home. You didn't have to go to the station. The, yeah. the VLF waves go go halfway around the world. All right. And was it just a, an azimuth or was there, a, was there a, a distance component to it? No, no, it was a Latin long. Ah, oh, right, okay. It, it, the VLF would give you, give you your Latin long. So for, for its day, it was true. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, okay. Yeah. People who drive around now with their iPads and um, Oz Runways and uh, their iPhones. <laughs> Don't know how sport they are. You've got to remember that uh, flying off the carriers, we didn't have anything. We, we were quite advanced that we had a Doppler plot and a radar in the back to uh, find our way around. But when we went into what we called MCON silence, where there was no emissions allowed, no radar, no Doppler, we used to do all, all our navigation with a plotting board where you went away. We, we were out for four hours in the seeking and uh, you knew the mean line of, of advance of the carrier fleet. So you worked out where it was going to be and where you were and hoped like heck that in the middle of the night when you got back there, you could actually find the darn thing. And that they hadn't changed direction. Yes, yes. <laughs> because they couldn't call you on the radio to tell you either. <laughs> oh, yikes. And when you were getting out um, to the oil fields there, like when you actually arrived, how much more, how much fuel did you still have on board if there was any kind of complications you couldn't find where you're going? Oh, out back on the Wessex days uh, you're talking about? Yeah, so still off, off Broome. Yeah, out of Derby and Broome. Um, you're really uh, racking my memories here because I think we had just over two hours endurance and three refuels. So work it out. We we had to go on PNR basically, and work out our our point of no return for getting back to our previous refuel spot. Yeah, and there was no way we carried uh, decent alternate fuel. In fact, in fact, once we got to the rig, uh, East Timor was closer than going back to going back to Browse Island, where we, which was a little coral island which we found with the with the uh, VLF Omega and a marine NDB that okay. was actually on the island. All right, John, so after Broome, uh, where, was, where was the next stop? Okay, well, um, we, we, locate, we, we latched onto Broome there, but I was actually in Derby more often than Broome, uh, which was a real bloody frontier town in those days. And what was the accommodation? Uh, Were you staying in um, like Echo Huts or what was the setup? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, I switched companies to Okanagan, Australia, who needed an S61 pilot very quickly. And uh, although I had a couple of thousand hours on the seeking, I wasn't uh, I wasn't allowed to fly the S61 for Bristow because that was for the senior Australian pilots, and I was getting a little bit toe with uh, that sort of attitude. So I jumped ship and went to Okanagan, who put me on the 61, and uh, stayed with them for many years. Actually, they're a bloody good company. Is that the same Okanagan that's in Canada, or will change yep. to okay? Yep, um, they were the precursor of CHC. All right. But they were so big. I mean, they had 240 jet rangers in Canada alone. Wow. So our two S61s and two S76s here in Australia were were a joint venture with, uh, oh, I can't even remember the name of the company now. Sorry about that. Anyway, there was a joint venture here. And um, I was living down in Perth and, uh, oh, where were we? Exmouth. Exmouth most of the time. We also went to Eucla down there on the South Australia, Western Australia border where we doubled the population. We turned up with two S61s and I always remember our phone number was Eucla 12. Uh, We were flying out to the bite there where there was some oil exploration going on. And I don't know that they ever found anything, but there wasn't it. If they did, it wasn't commercial quantities. Fair enough. Are you still single at the moment, John? Uh, At that stage, my first wife, who's still my current wife, (laughs) uh, God bless her, she and I were dating heavily, and um, Okanagan became responsible for uh, us finally getting married because I came over to Melbourne and got – no, sorry. Sorry, before Melbourne, we, we were working out of India, Bombay, uh, sent to Bombay, and I was flying 212s there with Okanagan International, flying out to the oil fields, and I went – back to work there. I was doing rotation around about March and I got asked if I'd go to Ireland to fly an Australian 61 that had been ferried there by Peter Manctolo. So I said I'd only go, uh, oh, they wanted me to go straight from Bombay, so I said I'd only go if they'd uh, pay for Andrea to join me. So they did that and we had a lovely time over in Ireland and uh, back to India where I had some leave. So we went up to Srinagar the Dal Lake and uh, down to the Taj Mahal. And, of course, the Taj Mahal in the full moon is uh, is the crowning touch for any romantic. So when I finally got back to Australia in September, I came back as a, an engaged man. Oh, so I claim wow. Okanagan for that. Wow. And, and even just in the hey, so and we won't go into it, but you flew, obviously, the, uh, the S61 all the way from India back to Ireland. No, that was done by Peter Manctolo. Oh, all right, okay. Peter Manctolo and uh, Dave White, the the then chief pilot of Okanagan, Australia, Kiwi, and they took the machine from the uh, Western Australia to Ireland in either ten or eleven days. That would be an amazing trip too. Oh, wasn't it just so? And um, Peter's still flying. He lives down in Tassie. He's another fellow you ought to talk to. All right, I might chat to you after this and, uh, and give you details too because uh, that'd be a good story. So we, we, um, we finished up back in Australia and then I got moved over to Melbourne 
where I was a senior pilot of two S-76s flying down to the Bass Strait doing exploration work. I've got to say, you have spent a long time over water. You've <laughs> seen yes. a, a fair, fair, square mile, fair few square miles of ocean. Yeah. We, we pioneered um, a lot of helicopter IFR work there because all our flights out to the Bass Strait and back were IFR, which uh, really livened things up around the place, especially when um, TAA DC-9 were complaining because they were number two to an S-76 on an ILS into Essendon. Yep. And um, Bomber Brown was the pilot and he came back, uh, well, I'm only doing 140 knots, I'll speed up if you want. <laughs> yep. So that, that put the DC-9 driver back in his box. So we did that for a fair length of time and then um, a lot. all of a sudden the, the contract with uh, Phillips in Melbourne was coming to an end we were all looking okay because we were going to. We had another contract over in the west, and the rig that they were supporting over in the west sank. So there were all the crews and four aircraft, and no contracts in Australia. Okanagan, Australia, ceased to be. Okay, um, so they're out of the picture. Uh, yeah. that left you without a job. Uh, so what did you do next? I went and joined the police air wing here in Melbourne. And uh, flew the Dauphin. Was it a was it a fairly new organisation by then, or was it had it been around for a while? I think they'd been going for about three four years with the Dauphin at the very most, because Ron Newman was the chief pilot, and um, he had he had his own Hughes three hundred, and it became a little bit of uh, a, a decision time for him. So he left the police and got professional helicopter services uh, up and running and I actually took his position on the team. Uh, there were only three pilots and the one C-model Dauphin and one co-pilot at that stage and the aircraft was used far more as an airborne divvy van, what they called ASTRO, air support to routine operations. So there was a lot of flying done, you know, mostly getting about 70 hours a month Interesting place, but uh, the lack of initiative was uh, very apparent. You weren't you you weren't encouraged to show any initiative. All right, so it's basically just do go here, do this. Oh yes, yeah. You had to get the chief superintendent's permission to leave the metropolitan area twenty four hours a day, and I, th- I found that a bit stifling. So off we went and um, started up on on my own, initially providing crew services to ABC, Channel 10 and Channel 7, and uh, also the National Safety Council. I did a lot of work for the Safety Council for probably a year and a half in Townsville and south of Sydney, and also did some work over in New Zealand for Helicopters New Zealand. We were over there for about four months flying uh, 212s and an offshore 205 without floats, only the Kiwis. Fair enough. So, um, yeah, that was all going nicely and uh, work, yeah, work was good for a casual pilot and eventually started up more, more of an AOC operation here in Melbourne and operated a long ranger for Bob Jane, owned Bob Jane T-Marts, yep. which which was fascinating stuff, going all around the country, uh, following the 
the V8 supercars, doing a lot of going to just about every super supercar event around the country. Plus, so, so you're just taking him around, or were you actually doing um, filming for the for the races? Being there for Bob, he didn't fly in the machine so much. He'd meet me there, and uh, it was it was a very very casual corporate job where. Um, Lovely people to work for, nice people around the motoring circuit. Had an AOC, so did work here, there and everywhere, including um, a lot of filming. And, in fact, that was my, uh, yeah, one of those things where I, I don't resile from people learning. We, I had a, an accident with a, a very early morning, turbulent conditions, low-level filming, and I'd planned it quite meticulously where I was going to stop the run because of power lines following a crossing road. And as I approached there, there was a school bus turned down the road and I became more focused on whether to go in front of or behind the school bus for safety and completely forgot the power lines. So I snagged one with the, saw saw them at the last moment, pulled up, levelled so I wouldn't hit it with the tail and just slid the toe of the right skid underneath the top line, which uh, pulled us over on our nose. I was looking straight down at the ground, and I thought the only way out of this is to pull power and break the power line. Yep. And it was a very reassuring twang as the power line broke, but, of course, that then threw me skywards with full half cyclic, and I cut the tail off. <laughs> right. So what, which machine is this in? This is in a, in a, a Jet Ranger? A Long Ranger. Sorry, Long Ranger. Yes. All right. So, yeah. What, 100, 100 feet off the ground, no tail, falling yeah. falling backwards? Well, I must have rolled the throttle off because we didn't spin. And I had I, I had the, cycle, uh, the collective so high and pulled so hard to try and arrest the, uh, the rate of descent that I actually snapped the collective. Wow, okay. And um, turned the aircraft into a convertible. Yep. Uh, did a couple of vertebrae, um, the... Passenger got a black eye, and the crew, uh, the cameraman in the back, um, had a broken leg. So that's not, not too not bad, a, considering. Not a high point in my career, but uh, I don't resile from it because people have to learn. And the mistake I made, uh, it was very, very hot. I'd had a uh, a disturbed night, not a lot of sleep. Decision making was obviously just off enough that even though I'd planned and knew where I was going to stop the run, I allowed myself to be distracted. And is that the so, only only major incident you sort of had so far? No, there's one other. Fair I enough. managed to stick the tail of um, my BK into a tree at night. Once again, yeah, the old uh, – the, the, the holes all lined up. There was a lot of pressure to get up to New South Wales for firefighting and um, I had about at least two if not three options to calm down. I'll go first thing in the morning. But they wanted me there to start first thing in the morning so I pushed on and I got to Bankstown about 11 o'clock at night. Nobody there. Went to an area that I was familiar with and there was something on the ground which distracted me. So... Stuff the tail in a tree. 
So it was an off off airfield landing then. It wasn't at the actual airfield. Oh yes, it was. Yeah. It was in the airfield. I was in the airfield. Okay. Yeah, it was alongside the hangar that I had a I had a jet ranger base there, and uh, that was why I decided to go where I went, knowing once again full well that a an aircraft that I'd followed up there had landed somewhere else. And um, but he called me to say he'd had all sorts of trouble trying to get out of the airfield because it was all locked up and he couldn't find anyone to let him out. Uh, Little things, you know, they all line up. Yeah, it, it was silly, very silly. And did it? Um, so the tail went, tail went into the tree, and did it spin then, or what? what was actually, what was the result? Was it just a, a blade strike? Oh no, no, the whole tail rotor gearbox got pulled out, and um, I managed to think quickly enough to throw the lever down to stop the aircraft spinning and hit the ground and um, the undercarriage spread and there was the tail rotor and the gearbox sitting right alongside my door. So I only spun about 70 degrees, which I th- was lucky. Yeah. Um, it, the same as the, the wire strike, training takes over. I have absolutely no recollection of rolling the throttle closed on the uh, Long Ranger, but I must have done because I didn't spin and the engine uh, was sold off as part of the wreckage and uh, as serviceable. ATO inspected it and it hadn't been over-tempt, over-talked or anything. And survived the crash, wow. Um, So training reactions are so vitally important uh, to do things instinctively. You haven't got time to think when these when these things happen. I mean, the I, I felt the tail rotor hit the tree and dumped the lever just instinctively. Where are the throttles in the BK? Are they on the on the roof? Are they PCLs? Or? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're overhead. Yep. So there's no way I could have pulled the throttles back. Yep. No way at all. All right. So well, let's go back to happier times. Yes, uh, so <laughs> they're, they're my two instants, and um, you know, people, anyone listening. Learn from it. Yeah. I mean, we, we have to because you can't afford to, like, this either economically and, uh, and lives-wise for, for pilots not to learn from every accident that's out there. Well, do your training. Do your checks and see them as a constructive adjunct to your career where you do regular checks, you, you, you have things so instinctive that the muscle memory takes over. You don't stop and think. There's a lot of things in twin engine flying where you mustn't react instinctively. You've got to count up to five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten to identify the correct engine so that you don't shut down the wrong engine. But you've got to have all, all these reactions built in. You sometimes can't afford to say, oh, I better get the checklist out while I'm plummeting to the earth. Other times you've got to be able to say, yes, I'll get the checklist out I'll control the aircraft, aviate, navigate, communicate. I had a, uh, a turbine blow on me on a PT-6 in the North Sea. The aircraft kept flying. And um, then it's a matter of negotiating with the local air traffic to accommodate me on a big enough platform so that I can do a single-engine landing. Yep. Now, there you don't rush into it. Once you've realised the aircraft's still flying, just follow the checklist. So is there... Not so much errors, but more attitudes or behaviours that you see in either other pilots or whether it's a low-hour pilot where they don't spend enough time getting to know the machine or enough time sitting there with the checklist. 
Like, is there a, is there something you can give folks other than, you know, do your training? Uh, is there a, a behavioral change you could suggest people make or an attitude they need to take into the cockpit with them? Airmanship is airmanship. And it's something that you build up. Your training is terribly important and your attitude towards the training is even more important. These days, the cost involved in training is such that the continuity for civilian trained pilots often is very broken. I I see people who come along, they can only afford so many lessons a month and therefore their second and third lessons are... 30% 30% wasted because they're building up the knowledge that they left behind a week ago or two weeks ago. It makes such a difference if you can go and do a, a concentrated course and get all those, those skills up in a short But cost is always such an important thing for these, these trainee pilots these days. It's a totally different environment to the one that I went through. Um, I mean, a... Uh, a pencil and a ruler and a, a Dalton computer and a, and a chart compared to an iPad with uh, a built-in moving map display such as Oz Runways. Gosh, it's so easy. But I have flown with pilots where I've been doing a, a check ride where I've finished up turning the iPad off and some of them, the reaction is quite interesting. They really have a struggle to even look out of the cockpit and realise just where they are, which is something that has to be addressed back at the basic training level or somewhere shortly after the basic training level. Yep. And the guys up to PPO aren't going to have the luxury of an iPad, hopefully in a, in a 300 or 22. They might have a GPS, which is taking away some of those more basic skills which are coming through to the airlines and to the very advanced offshore helicopters where the flight control system is such that you are manipulating a computer game is the way I see it. You know, the fly-by-wire stuff that they've got on the, on the A3 series and uh, on many of the Boeings, the pilots are losing that manipulative skill. And I think it's been recognised from a few of the accidents. And we've also got that coming through to the offshore game. Look at the the accidents that they've had offshore, especially up in the North Sea there, where, where the pilots and the systems, they're not totally on top of the systems and what the system is trying to get the helicopter to do, whereas they think that they're trying to do something something different. I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself well there. Well, I think, it, I think it's coming back to, as you said, like losing your machines, it's, um, it's being the, the systems operator as much as that, that role of being the pilot is, and you know, they talk about this in CRM courses and things there too, where you, you're now becoming more of a supervisory role of automation. You're getting first officers and the like who are coming through with a skill set that hasn't fully developed and then they get put into this environment, especially in the um, airlines, where they then stagnate that skill set, that airmanship doesn't get the opportunity to flourish. Um, I'm heavily involved with the, 
the Honourable Company of Air Pilots, what uh, used to be known as GAPAN, the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. And it's recognised we, we are involved in quite a few submissions and papers to recognise this, this problem that's in, becoming more and more apparent within the airline world and I think will become more apparent in the high end of the helicopter world. And it's got to be, it's got to be stopped. It's got to be addressed because otherwise we'll finish up with systems managers who do not have the fully developed airmanship that's necessary to be a good pilot. Yeah, it's interesting how it's going to work out because the other side is you're seeing uh, pilotless aircraft and pilotless helicopters coming on board as well, where there is no airmanship, there is no pilot on board, and it's purely as systems. Um, That's right. So, yeah, look, that'll be interesting to see which way that goes. A lot of those are are single-purpose missions. I mean, the the remote-controlled Carmen doing sling load work but it's not going to it's not going to be the same as having a pilot in that machine that's going to go and do a sling load and then he's going to leap straight into doing a search and rescue yeah or he's in a military mindset as an ex army guy like yourself knows your spread of uh, skills is just too wide to be immediately replaced by an automated an automated si- system yeah i mean we're back at back Harking back to the Seeking and the Wessex, you know, we talk about the the fact that uh, Augusta now have auto hover in a number of their machines, and so is the S ninety two for search and rescue. All the development work that was put into the CHC S seventy sixes for the RAAF SAR. Back in the nineteen sixties, we were pushing a button to go down to an automatic hover with with an analog computer, and we did it day and night all weather, four hours at a time, and the system was absolutely dead set reliable. So it's not a recent discovery, this automated uh, flight control system with the ability to give you accuracy of a 40-foot hover from a 200-foot transit height. I mean, if I went above 200 feet, I'd get nosebleeds back in the Navy. We used to joke that you'd have to climb up to uh, intercept the carrier approach system but it's what we did, and we yeah. didn't have NVGs or anything, anything like that in those days. The guys these days have got some marvellous equipment, but you have to be not only on top of the equipment, but you still have to be a competent aviator. And I mean aviator, not just a pilot, not just a systems operator. You must be an aviator. You've got to have the flexibility to fly that machine when all the systems fail on you. And that's what does give me a small degree of concern watching the way that uh, pilots are developing in, in this modern age, which harks back to your question about my advice or my how I perceive the current generation. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure where we're going to take that one next, but uh, I'm just looking at the, the time here, John, and and and, uh, and one your you know your time available, but also folks listening. Um, yes. There's 
<laughs> There's a, a couple more little high points I, I quickly want to touch on because again we're only about halfway through your uh, your flying and I feel like I'm I'm uh, I'm cheating you by by not covering it all. But there's a, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about um, just to, to talk about those things. Is on your website you talk about the the world's largest towed flag. Can you tell us quickly about the story? Oh, at the time it was the largest. It's been superseded since then. But uh, flag flying was in its infancy and um, I finished up with a 40,000 square foot winner's flag for a Grand Prix to advertise the Grand Prix and uh, towed that behind, underneath the BK117 and it was a struggle. Uh, flag flying, it's not just the weight of the flag, it's the drag that the flag induces and that's not always appreciated when people see flags flying around the place or they you know, the telephone goes and look, you know, can you fly such and such? And it only, it, it only weighs uh, 700, 700 kilos and, you know, you can carry, you can carry 1,500. Even that's an exaggeration. Most of these darn things come out at 200 kilos, 300 kilos. But the drag is phenomenal. So what sort of speeds are you doing when, you, when you're towing the flag? Oh, 25, 30 knots. Most of them are specially cut so that they fly square at that sort of speed. The, the front of the flag will have a very definite curve to it. So the top, the top at the front of the flag where it's attached to the line is longer so that the, the tail of the flag flies square. But um, back when we were doing it, it was over water only because we didn't have jettisonable weights. Um, since then, there's a... A UK-based company developed uh, a jettable load where they've got sandbags at the bottom where the sand can be emptied, if you like, out of the bag so that if the whole thing is jettisoned over land, it comes down as a large chunk of fabric rather than a uh, 100, 200 kilo chunk of lead shot landing on somebody's backyard. Yeah, gotcha. All right. Um, the Antarctic trip you did sounds... Amazing, and again, I had a lot of the photos seem to have dropped off the um, the the people in the the forum there. But uh, yeah, can you talk about that? So you went down in, in support of the the French mission in uh, Antarctica. Yeah, it was a it was well to use an old naval term, it was a, a pierhead jump. I was chief pilot for a small company which had the contract, and the two pilots who went down every year, one of them had problems with getting his medical back out of CASA, uh, out of the medical department. There was no problem. They'd just got a uh, – they'd lost it or whatever. So it turned out that I, I went down instead of him. Um, like Thursday we made the decision I would go on Sunday. And it was great fun. The trip down was pretty rough. I'm fortunate I don't suffer from seasickness, but uh, I got – Friction burns sliding backwards and forwards across the sheets. Uh, it was that rough. And when we finally got down to um, the ice and all the movement calmed down, it was amazing the number of people who started turning up for meals. Yeah, I can, I can guess so. I've yeah, spent six weeks on, uh, on, a, on a Navy ship and, uh, yeah, I, I didn't do too bad. But, yeah, there was a couple of times when eating was, was very low on the list of priorities. Oh, look, it was uh, – the food was another story. You could have meat and potatoes or potatoes and meat. 
but uh, <laughs> uh, good East European diet. When we got down there, absolutely fascinating. I mean, you, you cannot comprehend how good the visibility is. Now, you could get airborne and you could see, you could see 100 miles. And because of that ability to see so far and because of the limitless horizon, you don't realise how big the icebergs are. I mean, you'd be flogging along, there'd be a great big row of icebergs and you, you, you get alongside them and they'd be 300 foot high and, uh, oh, 1,000 foot long. And everything is so blue. It's not white at all. Um, you know, you put the visor down on your helmet because it does get glary and it's almost an intense blue because of the tinting on the visor. So it's just the, the blue of the ice, like the actual, yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's all over and... Uh, we were down there flying out to what was uh, – did a lot of work uh, flying supplies because we couldn't get the ship in to um, De Monteville, the French base. We had to fly about 70 miles. Yeah, I think it was about 70 miles there and back, ferrying supplies and bits and pieces and um, what have you. Once we got that done, we did some work out on the Mertz Glacier which hadn't broken off the mainland for something like, oh, some phenomenal number of years, 20 or 30 or 40 years. I honestly can't remember. Um, but there was such an enormous amount of ice and it had started cracking from following the coastline. It had, it had cracked from both ends, as it were. If you imagine a triangle with a point going north into the ocean, and uh, the cracks had overlapped and the GPS stations that had been put in that we had to try and find, we only managed to find one of them, they're about three, two, three metres high and they were, they were tracking the movement of the glacier plus the opening of the crack. And we did all this work, put new tracking stations in and blow me down, about six weeks later, a big iceberg came around the corner, hit the tip and knocked the whole glacier off. Wow, so the whole thing actually broke away while you were you down there? Uh, no, after about six weeks, oh, sorry, six six weeks, weeks after yeah. we finished. And um, the, the result of all the fresh water underneath the glacier coming into the sunlight and um, the, the effects of all the marine life was calculated to absorb something like 100,000 tonnes of CO. You know, the, all the carrying on about um, global warming and too much CO in the atmosphere and all the rest of it. A simple act of nature like that fixed up um, a year's emissions. Thanks. Okay. Then you go and have a, a, a volcano erupts and you put uh, 15 years' worth of emissions into the atmosphere in, in 10 minutes. So it goes back Mother, Nature, Mother Nature's an interesting thing. But the flying was fascinating. Um, very small deck. There's one photo and it's, it's, you're in the, uh, I guess it's at the right-hand right seat of the squirrel and the photo is looking from the, the left over your, your shoulder or past your face to the deck and there's another squirrel on the deck there. And, uh, yeah, it does look quite tight with the, the two machines on there. Yeah, you had to have the blades uh, turned at the right angle so that you improved your clearances that was for sure and actually getting them back you actually take the blades off the machines just to purely to get them in the hangar was that there's a, yes. a little story about you have to hop behind an iceberg so you could get the the deck safe enough that you could actually 
yes. take the blades yeah. off. <laughs> yes, we uh, because they're stored below decks for the transit and tied down very, very tightly. And um, we actually had to skirt round a Force 10 coming home. We headed off towards New Zealand to get round the edge of this uh, massive, massive storm with uh, the the ship's inclinometer going about 40 degrees either side of uh, the vertical. So is it just a really flat bottom ship or is it because it's an icebreaker, it's not particularly... Okay. Yeah, they don't have much in the way of uh, seaworthy characteristics. Uh, Sounds a bit like the uh, Canimbla. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John. Just two quick uh, ones. Then the the freedom of the city of London is that a, a uh, I don't know is it more of a piece of paper type thing or what was that involved with the, the uh, Air Pilots Guild? Um, okay. Well, the the freedom of the city is the first step. That's open to any um, member of a guild, but that was the first step uh, before getting um, the guild livery. I'm a a liveryman of the Honourable Company. It was the Guild then. And the other little bit of exclusive for you is that last week I was awarded, um, I I was made a a Master Air Pilot, which is a recognition from the Honourable Company. I'm uh, In all the years they've been doing it, about 50-odd years of Master Air Pilots, so I'm I'm number 1,144. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yes, I'm quite pleased with that. One of our um, compatriots over in New Zealand got uh, knighted today or yesterday as well, um, a, a pilot over there uh, for services rendered. Yeah? Yeah, I'll have to um, check it out. I can't remember who, who it was. I saw something come through on Facebook there. I'll have to have a look. And, John, top tips uh, to finish off for the the new pilot trying to land that first job as a as someone who's you know, had pilots come through the door looking for, for work and things like that. What tips can you give folks just to get that first couple of rungs on the ladder? Okay. the All the pilots I employed came recommended. I never advertised. It was always word of mouth. So anyone wanting to get themselves a job, the important thing to do is to get your name recognised for the for all the right reasons. Knock on doors, by all means. Sending out CVs is a thankless task. I would not wish it on my worst enemy. The most important thing to do is to get the qualifications for the job that you see that you want to do. I mean, if you want to go offshore, you've got to get your instrument rating, your ATP subjects. If you want to follow a an aerial work career, then you'd need things like low level, you need um, sling load, you need your night VMC. You've got to have those core skills that are going to make you attractive to an employer. To knock on doors is also very, because you might just knock on the door at the right moment. I've never been a fan of hanger rats. I think that's a very, very uh, bad thing for our industry. But that's my own personal opinion. I, I never had a hanger rat. But in the same way, if you're expecting to get a job at the base, you know, your first job, you've got to realise that you can't be a prima donna and expect only to be a pilot and not dig out and help the company. 
You know, if the if the hanger needs sweeping, if the windscreens need washing, you're it. That's what you do. I did it when I ran and owned the company. It makes all the difference to have a cohesive working relationship and know that you can trust the people you're working for and the people you're working with. And the best way of doing that is to give yourself the right skills, the right qualifications, and be in the right place at the right time, which you can never you can never bank on achieving, but it's amazing how often you can do it if you really, really want to get there. I've never worked a day in my life. All I've ever done is uh, fly for a living because flying's my hobby and I love it. You know, it's a great way of uh, seeing the world, great way of meeting people. It's not a job. It's a vocation. It's very much a lifestyle, isn't it? It's, um... Absolutely. Absolutely. Which um, one? Oh, sorry. I'll just catch you off. I was just going to say I've been very, very lucky. I've, uh, I, I've turned my hobby into a career. Done a lot of things, been been a lot of places, met a huge number of people, and I'm still doing it. I've you know, had a job last, what's today, Wednesday, I've forgotten the days already. You know, I had a job Monday, Sunday morning. Had to be up at four o'clock, but by gosh, it was worth it seeing a, seeing the sunrise and doing photography over the city. Yeah, you know, I don't get a lot of flying now. I'd like to do more. Fire season's coming up. That might pick up again. Uh, I've got another photography job next week. In the meantime, I get on the motorbike and I'll be off to Canberra this weekend for another charity ride and um, travel around, have fun. Life's all about having fun. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're not doing it right. And that's perfect. It's a good spot to end on. And uh, look, at you know, <laughs> there's so much we didn't cover, but uh, you've right. done so many different things. But, John, that's been look fascinating. And thank you for, for sharing that with uh, the folks who are listening and, uh, yeah, just passing on, uh, you know, those things you've picked up along the way. Absolute pleasure, Mick. feel almost criminal trying to squeeze John's 49 years of flying into one episode like that, but that's the nature of things. And if he ever gets around to writing a book, there must be a huge amount of stories that he's had along the way that we didn't even get close to uh, touching on. So John has also pointed me in the direction of several of his peers as future guests to uh, get on the show. So stand by for some really experienced helicopter folks to be sharing some of their knowledge in some upcoming episodes. So again, a really big thank you for John for sharing a bit of his story with us and taking his time out to do that. If you liked the interview and want to leave a message for John, or if you had a question for him, then please head over to the website rotarywingshow.com and leave a comment on episode nine. Also, let us know where in the world you're listening from when you do that. Now, time for a little bit more audience interaction, and that means you, dear listener, the person listening to this, I'm in talks at the moment with recruiting and HR at CHC about getting one of their staff on the show to talk about pilot recruiting at the big end of town and what pilots do poorly when applying for jobs. So that includes things like what is the current best practice uh, in putting together the layout and content in your resume uh, and even things like interview techniques. So I'd love to get your questions about what I can put to those to that guest in the interview. Now, there's two ways to do that. 
Firstly, you can email me at feedback at rotarywingshow.com or alternatively, and I think a bit more fun, if you visit the website rotarywingshow.com, you'll see a, a widget there on the right-hand side where you can actually record and leave a voice message that I'll be able to play uh, live in the, in the episode to the guest. So that is if you have any questions that you'd like to have uh, for uh, around pilot job applications and or uh, job interviews. If you're involved in the marketing of your aviation company, then check out the sponsors for today's show, just trainmorepilots.com. The information there is all geared around getting more traffic to your uh, website and converting more prospects to student pilots or to customers. If your company would like to sponsor an episode, then just get in touch with me. Don't forget to sign up for email alerts at the website. That way you'll know when a new show is out and about any freebies or deals that I can arrange for show listeners. Tune in next week when we talk with a flying school owner in New York State. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I've been your host again, Mick Cullen. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to like, tweet, or share it so that we can get more people involved. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers. Till next time, fly safe.